Good evening, and thank you for being here this evening and making it through the cold. Um, I want to spend some time uh, this evening talking about um, the vision uh, for the church for the coming year that I, I think um, that has been laid upon my heart and um, help engage you perhaps in some exercises that will uh, uh, help you begin to experience this and uh, as to how we can uh, be the church. Um, for one another and for the community together um, under the theme of, of, of being able to uh, share our story and our journeys uh, together. And so I'll be uh, talking about that for a while, and then we'll have some time to talk with uh, one another, and then I'll have some words after that. I do want to honor the time and, and, planned, uh, and plan to do that. But again, I'm exceedingly uh, pleased uh, that you are here and that you have uh, braved what is for us the elements uh, here in uh, South Texas. So anyway, thank you for being here. Um, uh, can everyone hear me? Am I um, several years ago when we had the flood and we tried to meet and had no power, I, I learned that it doesn't matter how loud you think you are in the sanctuary uh, without a mic, uh, doesn't work too well. So pray with me. We bless you, O Lord our God. You have given us life, sustained our life, and brought us to this season of our life. And I thank you for the journeys that we've been on individually and the journey that we've been on as a church. And I pray, Lord, that as we reflect on your story and our story and as a church and our individual story, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts and minds to what you may be saying, strengthen and encourage us that we truly might be a people on a journey of transformation and freedom uh, with Jesus Christ. This we ask and in his name. Amen. Um, My wife uh, recently has gotten into Ancestry.com. And uh, so it seems like every other day, at least, when I come home from work, I find out something new about my relatives and where they're from and what they might have done or not done. And, and there's been some pretty good highlights. And, and then there's a time that I'm pretty sure that some of ours were slaveholders. And um, so it's, it's had its ups and downs, but I think it's still it's, it's helpful to know uh, where you're from. It's helpful to know your story. And I think that holds um, not true for me, but I think it holds true for our kids as well. So I remember a vacation we took some years ago. We did two things. First, we tried to clue our kids into our story as a couple. So we took them to the first apartment where we lived in Durham, North Carolina, and we walked the path from that apartment to where my classes were held by the chapel, walked back and went to some uh, haunts, went to the church where I worked back when I was there. And then the second part of the journey is we clued them in to the story that we have as a nation. And we, uh, we spent time in Boston and, uh, in uh, the Boston Commons and the Old North Church and Bunker Hill. Uh, we went out to, uh, Plymouth Rock and, and talked about the Mayflower with them. And then, uh, we even, uh, went south and eventually, uh, closed with a trip to Gettysburg. It is important, I think, to know our story and to know our story, uh, I think opens up so much, uh, for us. Um, Some of you may have heard when I, uh, in the sermon this morning, that our pastor Robert at Asbury 
really reached a breakthrough with somebody that he'd been visiting for months when he just finally asked the person, tell me about your story. And he learned a fascinating story about how he'd been a political prisoner in Cuba. And it just opened so many things. And so that's the question I'm here tonight to just ask, oh, what's the story? What's God's story? What's our church story? And then individually, what is our story? And so I'm just inviting us to reflect on that for a while uh, this evening. Because I think stories are not beneficial for what they do for the past. Stories are beneficial for what they speak to us about our present and about our uh, our future. And so stories, uh, in fact, have a way of continuing to unfold. None of us in this room uh, have completed our story. And our church, in the same way, has not completed its story either. So, first thing I want to talk to you about tonight is the, the fact that God has a story. And the story is in the Bible. And if I were to summarize it for you, uh, one of the phrases that, that I like to use is one that I've borrowed from other people. is called garden to garden. That our story opens in the Garden of Eden. When everything works in harmony with God as God intended. And where the relationship with human beings is so close that they that God walks with them in the evening in the cool of the day. But we know the story and how it winds down. It ends up with Adam and Eve estranged from God. Adam and Eve estranged from one another. Adam and Eve estranged even from creation itself. And of course, it's no surprise that their children will be at enmity one uh, with the other. And then we see a God then uh, taking this world that um, is in need of restoration and beginning uh, to work toward restoring it. And I mentioned to a class a little while ago that if I were God, I would have just probably waved my magic God wand and fixed everything and put it back together. But God didn't. God instead decided to work through us to complete this, uh, this process or advance this process of restoration. And, uh, I was with a rabbi a couple of days ago and, and he was doing the opening devotional and he said the way he used to talk about it at his, um, in his synagogue is he said, we used to call it God's unfinished business. That God, ever since uh, the fall, had the business of trying to put things back together. And for whatever reason, God has called us into that story to join God and, and, and have this planet work again as God has originally intended. One of the ways they used to talk about that in Jesus' days is they use a phrase called the renewing of all things. And we know that Jesus used that phrase himself because when he's at the Last Supper, he takes a cup and he said, I'm not going to drink from this again until I drink it with you at the renewing of all things. In other words, Jesus looked for a day when it would all come back in order. It had been a long journey, this process of restoration, and by the time of Jesus, it hadn't seemed to make a lot of progress. God tapped um, Adam and, uh, excuse me, Abraham and Sarah on the shoulder and invited them on a journey to be a part of the restoration. He told them their job would be to be a blessing to the nations. And then, of course, God uh, redeemed God's people from uh, slavery into freedom so that they could create this nation that would uh, that would uh, mimic restoration and would be a part of the restoration process. But they struggled, as we know, and God sent them uh, kings and then later prophets, and they continued to struggle until finally they ended up far from God and far from their promised land in exile. And then, in the fullness of time, we're told, God sent Jesus, uh, nurtured 
and Mary's womb to come forth. And Jesus continued as this agent of renewal and restoration. But the interesting thing is, if you watch the story, Jesus then recruited people to help him in this mission. Uh, Twelve men, as best we can tell. And if you look at Luke closely, seems to be seven women that, that started on this ministry with Jesus to make the world a place where God would be at home Again, Uh, And then, of course, after Jesus died and rose again, the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost so that this group of people now considered the body of Christ himself would be a part of that restoration uh, process. And the restoration process continues, we're told, all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, when finally it is a new heaven and a new earth. We've returned again to the original place of, uh, of restoration. But... Where we find ourselves in God's story is we're somewhere between the book of Acts and the end of Revelation, joining with one another and joining with God through the Holy Spirit in God's unfinished business. And so that's the larger story that we walk into this evening to remind ourselves that we are actually biblical characters. That God actually has a plan and a role for us. And if there are people who are hungry tonight, and if there are people who are lonely tonight, and if there are people who are estranged in their key relationships tonight, that means our work is unfinished. And there is more yet for us to do. Jesus said in his first sermon, he said, I've come um, so that the oppressed would be set free. Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor from Isaiah 61. In other words, Jesus said, this mission God gave us so long ago with Abraham, I'm carrying it forward. And then when he physically left, he invited us to carry on the work and gave us the Holy Spirit to carry on that work. So here we are. In the midst of that. So that's part of God's story. Well, what of our church's story as we uh, get here today? Some of you know this story better than I have because you've lived it longer. But around 1910, uh, uh, the people of Travis Park uh, decided that it was finally too far for folks to commute from the end of the trolley line in Alamo Heights into, into Travis Park for Sunday school for their children. And so they brought the Sunday school. And eventually the church out to where the people were at that time. They didn't just stay static, but they moved for them. And over the years, through many sacrifices and periods of, uh, of struggle, including during the Great Depression, when members of our own church uh, co-signed uh, on their own uh, value and worth uh, notes uh, to keep the church afloat. Uh, signed loans so that we could we could carry on sacrifices made through the years and the erection of the first church building and then uh, the adding to it and then uh, and then expansion and finally a big expansion uh, there in Alamo Heights in the early 1960s was completed. But we began to realize as a church that uh, those original children we were brought here for uh, their descendants, uh, there wasn't enough space or place for them and for the other children in the community. And as you know the story, uh, with the mighty hand of God and the response of um, God to our prayers, we came out here. Uh, and the work started in 1992 and the doors opened 
1994. And this became a place uh, not just for the children of our church, but for the children of the community and not just for that generation, but for the generations to come. And it hasn't been without struggle and difficulty, but the story continued uh, nonetheless. And the story continued uh, by trying again to go to new people in new ways to reach them. And so uh, through the years, a couple coffee shops have been started and one discontinued. Uh, three campuses now exist, Asbury and uh, Riverside. Um, different opportunities, international missions um, to uh, Kenya and Uganda, uh, Burundi, Mexico, Costa Rica and Haiti. Just to name a few, our story has been people who were blessed in an incredible way like Abraham, but came to realize that they were blessed to be a blessing. And so our church continues on. And like the the generations in the church before us, it does not continue on without difficulty and without struggle. You see, because we cannot ever tell our story apart from the story of the people around us and from the culture around us. And the culture in which we find ourselves today can best be described um, by a guy named Charles Taylor in a book called The Secular Age as a culture of disenchantment. And uh, there's a disenchantment with institutions. There's a disenchantment with um, uh, organized uh, religion. There is a disenchantment with religious authority and symbols of that authority and books of that authority, such as our own holy scriptures. And we're in a, a culture that is changing and where the church used to be considered to be in the center of things and could enact things like the Methodists did when, when the Methodists were behind behind the Women's Christian Temperance Union and pulled off prohibition for better or for worse, or the uh, church could help be behind blue laws. Those days when the assumption that everyone was a part of the church, those days in the changing of our culture have, um, uh, um, have gone in many ways. In fact, current estimates are that 65% of the population is not at this time interested coming and coming through the doors of a church, no matter what they do that's interesting or entertaining or wonderful. Still 35% are. For that, we're grateful. But for the other 65%, they still lead lives of struggle of loneliness and they reap the fruits of of their disenchantment with the things of God. And like our ancestors in this church before us, our story continues by trying to uh, reach out to them and find them where they are. And so it's a time of upheaval. The culture is changing. The church is changing. And unfortunately, they're both changing at the same time. It's like, I don't know if any of you had the opportunity that both of you in the house got the flu at the same time or a virus. It was bad enough when one of you had it, but with both. And so we have a culture that's seeming to uh, turn a blind eye to the church. And then we have a church trying to struggle and figure out who it is in the midst of a, of a changing time. Uh, one of the best analogies you've heard for this has comes from um, the late Phyllis Tickle. She was the religion editor editor of uh, Publishers Weekly, which basically means she saw about every religious book that that was published came across her desk. And she said one of the things she noticed in a lot of the titles is people were recognizing this change in the culture, this change in the church. And so she did some research 
And one of the things she figured out is if you look back to the beginning of Christianity, about every 500 years, the church seems to have what she called a rummage sale. And that there's an upheaval. And a lot of things are kind of set to the side. And new things, uh, new furnishings come in their place. And so in the garage sale, of course, um, at, uh, when Jesus was born, some of the things of Judaism were continued. Some of the things were changed radically. 500 years later, there was um, uh, a, a reaction against the sort of Constantinian um, official establishment of the church to where you ended up with larger churches, but they were... L- They were tepid at best. And there wasn't a deep desire to practice the faith. It was more desire to kind of sign your name and put it on the roll. And so you had all of a sudden monastic movements. Uh, Monks would go out and get away from society. Uh, They would say this, that society is a shipwreck and we have to abandon ship. And so they would hide in caves in different places and renew the faith. Uh, from a more intense devotion uh, to God, at least apart from the level of devotion they saw in society. 500 years later, the church endured a split, a great split between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. And, and it's a split that where we still feel the effects um, more than a thousand years later. And then, of course, 500 years after that, you got Martin Luther. And the 95 Theses and a lot uh, uh, he thought should be thrown out and, and put away in the garage sale. And he wanted some new furniture as well. And about 500 years after Martin Luther, well, that's this past fall, wasn't it? We find again uh, the, the scene of church beginning to shift as well. But the good news, says Tickle, is this, that the Holy Spirit is always working And that while some things that seem to us to be the way that things ought to go get gradually moved aside, there are always things that are retained and the new things that are brought to the church, which enliven us and move us forward. So part of the story is just trying to be wise and discerning about what things of the church and the way we've done it for 500 years have to be auctioned off or or given away and what things must be kept. And what things might need to be pioneered or invented. For the things to be pioneered or invented is where I want to turn my attention in a few minutes tonight. But I wanted to at least give you a brief overview of what I think God's story is. God calling us into partnership. What our story as a church has been, which is we have been willing partners, willing time and time again to make sacrifices of ourselves to be where people are and to uh, open our hearts to them. And then where the church is in North America itself, which is in a time of distress and great uh, change. And, and of course, our church has not been um, uh, immune to that. You're well aware, I'm sure, that uh, our attendance plateaus and, and, and gradually on the main campus begins to seep down. Financially, there are challenges. What's interesting is that's common now. As I mentioned in the sermon last week, it apparently uh, these challenges have gone. Uh, if we ever thought they were just ours, they ended up going up 35 east and west. They've hit Dallas, Fort Worth and Houston. And my colleagues report about the same sort of struggles that we report. But they also report the same hopefulness that perhaps this means God is calling us into new directions and, uh, and that God is calling us to uh, experiment 
And God is calling us to decide what is true that we must hold on to and where we might want to uh, begin to innovate as well. So where are we at this moment? It seems to me that um, uh, that we chose wisely uh, four priorities last year. We chose the, wisely to try to do better about hospitality for people uh, who are uh, showing up through our doors and be more welcoming. And a lot of you have been a part of that. And you have my deepest uh, gratitude. You're helping this house feel like a home to people. We also um, uh, challenged ourselves to improve what was by far the weakest area in the life of our church, which was communication. And we've made some uh, progress on getting uh, the basics of our church out um, uh, through the staff and key leaders. And we're now working on getting that story out. And we are in the process of bringing someone on to help us. Uh, Job interviews have already begun in this area who will strengthen us and challenge us even more in the future. But we had two others. Last year that I think as I read the times, we must remain committed to. The first one is this, and that's the job one that Jesus gave us when he said, as you go into the world in Matthew 28, make disciples. That um, disciples, whether we are in the first century or the 21st century, still continue to be the name of the game. And somehow since the days of Constantine, when they quit making disciples and they started just signing people up. Um, that we've fallen in uh, into that uh, trap of just saying, well, if we could have members and enough members, that would work. But the world in which we live is a world that is in deep need of people who live and shine forth the faith. I was sharing with some people all ago, one of my favorite verses from the Bible is Paul talking to the Philippians. And he said, as you hold on to the word of life, which is Jesus Christ, as you hold on to the word of life. You will shine like stars in this crooked and perverse generation. Now, I'm not here to call the generation crooked and perverse, but I'm here to say that as we hold fast and grow in Christ and our lives begin to look more as he uh, looked, uh, that will begin to stand out. And so discipleship to me is, first of all, a matter of trying to craft people to become more like Jesus. And uh, so transformation is involved. Uh, None of us just wakes up in the morning more like Jesus than we were the day before. It takes intentional effort. It takes prayer. It takes community. It takes the Holy Spirit. Uh, It takes people being on the journey with us. But it is the journey of transformation that it's taken me 22 plus years to realize that that's really what God has called our church to be about. That we are about uh, trying to encourage, challenge, and shape people with the life of Christ and turn them loose in this world. And that ultimately, ultimately, that is how we make impact in the world. Not by how many people uh, come and attend or, or participate, but by how many people whose lives are changed to look more like the lives of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I'm convinced that discipleship is a worthy goal. Now, what I want to talk with you about uh, this evening is about how we envision discipleship beginning to work and the way that you can play a role in it. But first of all, let me realize, uh, help, uh, let me remind you that re- discipleship is essentially uh, transformation. It is life change. Uh, And so my assumption is that I'm not the same person I was 22 years ago when I got here. 
And for the most part, that's a good thing. For the most part, I've been trying to journey and grow and follow Christ down the avenues and paths to which he has invited me. And I believe more than anything else, that is the key to not just surviving, but thriving in the future. Some of you are familiar with uh, uh, the movement called Faith Walking. Um, if you uh, haven't uh, been involved in it, it is challenging. Uh, but I will say this. The founder of Faith Walking uh, a few years ago was talking about how all these churches he works in, they experience um, uh, difficulty and decline because of the change in the in the church and the change in the culture. And then he made this statement, and I've had to think about it for a long time and evaluate it. He said, I am convinced that in the 21st century, the churches that will thrive in our society are the churches that will be about transformation of lives more than anything else. Not necessarily about a program, not necessarily about even a doctrine, but be about life change. And so I want to encourage you by saying we are starting on that journey and I'm hoping to introduce you and and have you join me on that journey tonight. So here's one of the things that I would like to say. And that is that if I were to sum up for you tonight in one sentence, this would be it. If you ask the question, what is our story? Where are we now? What are we doing in one sentence? It is this. We are inviting people into a journey of transformation and freedom with Jesus Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. We are inviting people into a journey of transformation and freedom with Jesus Christ. I believe that it is all about life change and that life change will bring us greater freedom from the fears, uh, the addictions, um, the conflicts that hold us right now in our place. And so, uh, and also journey implies that probably we're going to move in a sense that uh, we're going to take some steps maybe we hadn't taken before. Ask some questions. Let people speak to us or listen to us in ways that maybe we haven't before. Our lives will be different. I had a friend who's watched me too closely for about 30 years say this to me the other night. He said, you know, I've watched you work at two different churches. And he said, here's what I think you do. He said, I think that you get on a journey of faith, you follow where it leads, and you try to talk your congregation into following you on that journey. And actually, I think he's kind of right. I think that's what I, and so what I want to offer you tonight is what I think I hear God saying at this moment. And, and God is, continues to speak and uh, we've been so blessed by understanding the Hebraic roots that, uh, and journey that God has brought us on. Um, we've, we've been so blessed, uh, by uh, understanding, um, uh, how, uh, we might um, begin to worship in different ways through the years. So, but all sorts of journeys we've gone on. But this journey that I want to invite you on is a journey of transformation in faith. And here's what I think we know about it. And some of you probably are aware of this. Um, and when I first read this three years ago, I knew that this was right. Instinctively, I knew in my heart, this guy's right. I don't know if he's got the uh, scholarly research to back him up. I do not know if he's had that. I haven't seen it. 
But this is what he said. It was in a book called Heart and Mind. The man's name was Alexander Shia. But this is what he said that grabbed me. He said, in the Old Testament, you can see a story of transformation and change unfolding in four steps or four stages. There is slavery in Egypt. And so God addresses their slavery and they are let out of slavery. But that's not the end of the story. It just gets worse. Then they move into suffering in the wilderness where things die, attitudes die, and unfortunately, people die. And then they get this promised land experience. They take Jericho, they cross the Jordan, and they get to the promised land, and there's new hope, and uh, there's new possibility, and new revelation. But they're not finished yet. On this journey, then God invites them, okay, this land is yours. Be my witness. Settle it. Make it a place fit for me. And we see that over the next couple hundred years, they begin to settle the promised land and in fits and starts. And of course, their journey doesn't end there because they end up falling back into slavery, end up in the wilderness of the exile, and these things seem to go again. But what he suggested is that um, when you look at this, not just biblically, but psychologically, his work is with trauma survivors, you can see similar patterns in which people find themselves. They go through uh, an intense change. Uh, as they try to deal with change, they seem to stumble in or find into even deeper suffering while they're working their way through it. Then suddenly there's this aha moment, which, by the way, if you're in that moment of deep suffering at here, uh, know this. It seems to be out of the blue and discontinuous with what came before. Suddenly you've been wandering for 40 years and then you find yourself in the promised land. You've been struggling with that wayward child for so many years. And then suddenly there's a light that comes on um, and uh, and they see this psychologically. And then then anytime you get that new revelation, it's going to be tested. And then you're going to be called to walk it out in a way that you can bring your new joy and your new vision to other people because after all we were called to be a blessing and then he made the argument that actually uh, when you look at it the early churches understood the gospels followed the same pattern they the gospel of matthew was written after the fall of the temple which was a pretty big and radical change and now suddenly jews well were they jews or were they christians and if i'm following christ Does that make me a traitor to those back into Jerusalem or what's left of Jerusalem because it needs to be rebuilt? But God is calling me right now to live my life here miles away. And they struggled with the change. And then he said the gospel of Mark was written in a time of suffering during the Nero, Neronic persecution. When, of course, Nero set fire to the city. And and um, in ancient days, I mentioned this to some people a couple hours ago, but modern, I mean, ancient Rome was more crowded, more dense people density than modern Calcutta is today. That's just the world in which they live. And so the one thing uh, they were likely to get was disease, but the one thing they were most afraid of was fire. And so when those Christians started the fire, Allegedly, it became a perfect opportunity to go door to door in the Christian Jewish ghetto 
and begin to drag out Christians and take them to the Circus Maximus, feed them to the wild animals or to the gladiators. And so in this moment of suffering, Peter's um, account, likely Peter's account uh, given in the Gospel of Mark, encouraged them about what it's like to pick up your cross and follow Christ. And then the Gospel of John. Uh, actually, in our Bible, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In their Bible, it was too. But they tended to read John first because John was that moment of beautiful revelation where you meet the, the Messiah in the garden or when you have this uh, wonderful experience of the vine and the branches and community. And it's a wonderful, joyous revelation that comes to you. And so it raised the question, what do I do with my new joy? That I'm experienced and how do I live it out with you as you are uh, meeting and experience Christ? And how are we in this place of Ephesus where John resided for and, and uh, Mary, actually, the mother of Jesus resided there as well for years and years. How do we live out our faith and our newfound faith with each other? And so you see lots of talk in John about I pray that they will be one and about unity and coming together. And they talked about that. And then finally, the gospel of Luke. Seems to have been written before John, but enough after Matthew and Mark that the question became, what is now God asking of us on our journey of faith? And the answer that you find in John is just that. Keep walking the journey. Think about the stories um, and how important journeys are in Luke. Uh, We're doing parables now on Sunday morning, and the parables are stories Jesus told on the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem which is the most significant journey that Jesus took in his earthly life. And then even after Jesus' death and resurrection, we read about two men who are on their way walking the road to Emmaus. And on this journey, uh, they, are, they are called and summoned to walk uh, with Christ on that journey and to live out their faith. And, and so it is that I am convinced that this is not the only model. But this is a possible way to look at discipleship, which is, can we in groups and classes begin to share with each other on a deep enough level that I can tell you where something in me is enslaved and you can receive it and help me help me get to freedom where I can tell you and share with you where I'm suffering, where something seems to be dying in the, my, in the moment, or whether I can confess to you that this something needs to die, can you help me put it to death? Can we, in groups with one another, talk about the new revelations and joys that we've experienced and the promise that God spoke to us that, that's lit our hearts on fire? And can we also gather together and challenge and commit to support each other on just getting up tomorrow morning and doing it again? And faithfully walking the path with Christ. I'm convinced that as we begin to have these discussions with one another in deep and ever deepening and profound ways, it will shape our lives. And if our lives are shaped, I assure you they will start to shine like stars among others whose lives have not yet been similarly shaped. I have no grander plan for that, for you tonight than that, but to say I'm inviting you on this journey of transformation. I'm encouraging you to be able to start having honest conversations with each other in the presence of the Holy Spirit and to be open to where Christ might be 
calling you. So tonight, what I want to do for a while is have you practice some of these questions. So it's real important that you find some friendly people on, on your pew that you can trust. And, and I know you can't go, you know, you can't go that many fathoms deep tonight. But I want to give you a taste of this. And so, uh, Steve, can we show the first question? I'd like to, you to take about uh, six minutes in your group and answer this question. Where are you experiencing enslavement in your life right now? For me, for me, unfortunately, this is an easy one. I've built my life on making everybody else happy, impressing them. And I've found that ultimately I've gone for the cheese on the end of the trap. And that has been enslaving for me. And so I need people to help hold me accountable and say, are you saying this so I'll be impressed with you? Or are you saying this because God has led you 